0: Live. Hello, this is William Fink, Christogenia.org. This is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, May 18th, 2013. Praise Yahweh, the God of True Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight, I'm. It's not going to be an especially long program tonight. I'm going to present a paper I wrote this month called "The Wicked Black Gentry." Uh, I wrote it on, on a. Um, uh, on a whim, Clifton Emighizer had pointed out some, so, some statements from George Washington on his website. And, and the more I look into it, and, and I, I would never retract my position that America was founded on Christian principles. There is absolutely no doubt the Jews didn't have it easy. They actually had a 70-year struggle for um, emancipation in America for the ability to do things like freely and openly run for public office in all the colonies and and um, really begin to turn the satanic screws down on the, the white Christian sheep in this nation. It took the civil war for the most part to do that, well the war of northern aggression I should call it for the most part for them to be able to do that, the sheep just go along. The Jews however, were sinking their claws into America even before the nation was born. There's um the the more I the more I look into this that the um the the more disappointed and disgusted that, that I get. But yet you know what what would you expect? The um the names that, that are most famous also usually happen to be the ones that have have done the Jews the biggest favors over time and, and with their control of usury and and their ability to accumulate wealth through usury, what, which began 500 years before this nation was founded in, in Europe they've been able to accumulate great wealth they've been able to control our media for, for many centuries now and and through those through those channels, they 've been able to control public opinion. you know, when I was a child, I read a lot. I had a long period in my adolescence where I didn 't read much at all. I was caught up in a world and, and a long period in my early adulthood where everything I read was um, what was techy stuff, because I was into computers at a young age. Well, I read a lot as a child, and, and the name and I read a lot of, um, of good material. Uh, 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 a lot of his historical material then. And, and one name that um, always popped up was Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather, he, 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 he's esteemed as a great um, clergyman of New England. He's really promoted. He, he's, um, in, in, even in school, he was always spoken well of, even though he presided over the Salem, Salem Witch Trials. Mather was a... Um, A very influential New England Puritan minister, he was an author, he was a pamphleteer, he he was um, very active in the the political circles of the church. He's often remembered for his role in the Salem witch trials, and and that alone should have long ago discredited Cotton Mather, but, but his reputation seems virtually untarnished by it in in a lot of respects. He was the son of Increase Mather. He was the grandson of John Cotton and Richard Mather. All of these men were prominent New England ministers, Puritan ministers. Mather was accusing Christians of witchcraft and demon possession. And all the while he was coddling and protecting the real demons infiltrating New England, the Jews. I'm going to read something from Brown University about Increase Mather first and then about his son Cotton Mather. Increase Mather thought the future conversion of the Jews to be both possible and not far distant in time. This has been a problem ever since the dawn of Christianity. Jesus Christ couldn't convert the Jews so who the hell is any man to think he could do better? He opposed, Increase Mather opposed John Lightfoot's argument that a general conversion of the Jews was impossible. John Lightfoot wrote, um, he wrote a, a voluminous commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Hebraica. John Lightfoot knew the Jews. He, he understood that, that that they were not the people that they said they were. He understood that um that, that they had brought in all sorts of aliens into their number and and, and were baptizing them into Judaism at a, at a very early time. John Lightfoot, John if any late medieval period knew what well um. Protestant scholar understood the Jewish problem, I I would have to say it was, if I had to pick a name, it was John Lightfoot. Clifton's quoted John Lightfoot. Clifton Emmerheiser has quoted John Lightfoot in some of his papers. It seems that Lightfoot, because he was so um, deeply studied in actual Jewish literature, he, he really knew the nature of the beast. He knew it was impossible to convert these people. Increase Mather opposed that argument. He also, Increase Mather, also attacked Baxter's thesis. Now, I'm not familiar with Baxter, but he attacked Baxter's thesis that the Jews were converted once and for all after Christ, meaning the the real Judeans, right? The real Israelites, whom, whom all Christian clergymen have basically, until recently, confused Jews and Israelites, which is the first huge mistake. They refuse to look into the history of Judea. I don't even think they think about looking into the history of Judea to understand why these Judean people rejected Christ. Baxter had a thesis that the Jews were converted once and for all after Christ and that those who did not convert at the time were condemned to remain in the Jewish faith for all time, in other words, they were condemned to be opposed to God for all time, and, and Baxter basically had that right. According to Mather, Increase Mather, a national conversion of the Jews was a glorious truth. So, so now we see how old that heresy, Christian heresy, it's it's not Christianity, is. In American Christianity, it goes back to at at least to the time of Increase Mather. Cotton Mather, Brown University calls him the great New England divine, expressed impatience that the Jews had not yet accepted religious conversion. But like other Puritan writers, he also identified profoundly with the wandering Jews of the Old Testament. So we see that Cotton Mather took it for granted that the Jews were the people of the book. In the same vein, the green fields and forests of New England were often cast as savage deserts filled with dangers. In the Magnalia, his great history of Puritan New England made often invoked the ancient Israelites, writing in one case of their mistaken arrival in Massachusetts rather than Virginia in 1620. He said, but why at this Cape? Here was not the port which they intended this was not the land for which they had provided. There was indeed a most wonderful providence of God over a pious and plain people in this disappointment. The most crooked way that was ever gone, even that of Israel's peregrination through the wilderness, might be, be called a right way, such as the way of this little Israel now going into a wilderness. Mater was a lot closer there than he was in, in, in his assessments that the Jews... May have been the ancient Israelites. That's for certain. From commonplace.org, that this, that this is, um, Mather was such an apologist for the Jews, and it seems he was an apologist in, in, in well, well, in many more ways than, than what's expressed at Brown University. From commonplace.org, an article by Mark Valeri, The Rise of Usury in Early New England. Now, now I, I had um, explained some of this. I don't think Valeri was my source, but I explained some of this in the program in 2009, explaining um, Jewish usury in the Middle Ages and, and how it crept into Christendom. And I had detailed how Cotton Mather was responsible for the acceptance of usury in New England in the late 17th century. Now I will quote something along those same lines from Mark Valeri's article. Now Valeri goes off the track on the Catholic position on usury. He's almost like a Catholic apologist, I guess, ignoring the forced acceptance of usury on the bishops of of Europe, which occurred at the Fifth Lateran Council, even if some later bishops, and some did, remained opposed to usury, the Fifth Lateran Council under the de' Medici popes, Pope Leo X, namely, well, well, they forced usury on Europe. They forced the practice of usury on the bishops of Europe. To quote Valery, in 1699, a third-generation Boston pastor, Cotton Mather, informed New Englanders, that the Puritan ministers of the Boston area no longer regarded usury as sinful, meaning meeting as the Cambridge Synod, they had determined that usury, or an advance on anything lent by contract, the import of the reference to contract is explained further on in in Valeri's article, was legitimated by the divine law of the Old Testament, given countenance in the New Testament, justified by economic necessity and utility, mandated by the ethical principle of equity, required by the philosophical meaning of money itself, and congruent with the moral law of charity. Mather went on to state, only Catholics soaked in canon law and papal superstition Mather wrote that writing for the other ministers of the Cambridge Synod, maintained the old prohibitions against usury. So he slandered, Cotton Mather slandered those opposed to usury with the Catholic label. And that wasn't at all true because it was over 150 years before this or or longer that the Fifth Lateran Council forced usury, on Christian Europe. They forced an acceptance of usury on Christian Europe. So it wasn't true. However, Mather used the Catholic label to slander clerics opposed to usury. Imagine that. Lurie goes on to state, Mather and his colleagues, in contrast, imagine some forms of usury as a means of sociability, prosperity, and promoting the common good. So there it is. It's all downhill from there for Yankee New England. Cotton Mather browbeat the acceptance of usury onto, Pur- onto the Puritan people, and use, use the Catholic uh, uh, the, the Catholic label as a slur in order to do it. With this, I will present my article. I, I didn't include any of the Cotton Mather material in, in, my, um, in my original editorial, my original version of this article. I thought it would um, help fill out and, and augment my article and, and, and fill out the program here. Most of the early white colonists, and this is true of Puritan New England, regardless of Cotton Mather, Most of the early white colonists of North America came to settle here, at least initially, in order to escape various oppressive conditions in Europe. For instance, there are the famous accounts of the Plymouth colonists seeking religious freedom. The entire colony of Pennsylvania also, which originally included New Jersey and Delaware. They were all part of that original colony deed to William Penn of, of Pennsylvania was intended to be a Christian nation, safe from the religious oppression of Europe. And it was supposed to be Christian exclusively at its beginning. But it was not only freedom from religious tyranny which the early settlers sought. And one example, I point out one example here. There is a book which tells, citing original documentation, and because some of my ancestors are involved, I. I actually have a copy of this book downstairs on on the shelf. There is a book which tells of the resettlement of Germans who were never able to recover economically from the Thirty Years' War. And therefore, Queen Anne gave him a grant of a large portion of upstate New York. Actually, it was in the Mohawk Valley which they began to settle in 1708, and, and very shortly thereafter they started engaging in Indian wars and driving off the Mohawk Indians. The original records, and, and all of the occupations of these people who came over at this time were listed, the original records describe these settlers as having led simple lives as agriculture at one of the trades and few of them are found to be otherwise. I I think some of them later chose military occupations, but only once the Indian Wars began and, and the need for military occupation was established. On the other hand, in contrast, there were the Jews. The first Jews in America were not in pursuit of religious freedom or religion at all, for the most part. These were Sephardic Jews from the Caribbean, and from South America, whose ancestors is, had fled the Inquisition on the ships of the Conquistadors. The Inquisition really wasn't about the Jews being Jews. The Inquisition was really about the Jewish practices that Judaism promotes a, among Jews. That That's yet, you know, when a Jew seeks religious freedom, he's really seeking the freedom to do the things which the Talmud allows him to do and some of those things are fairly disgusting. Ritual murder and things like that are the reasons why Jews have been driven out of every nation in Europe at least one time or another. It's not because their religious freedom is in danger. It's because of the freedoms that their religion allows them. It's because of the filthy, disgusting, satanic beliefs that they practice. It's because Jews, being Jews, are contrary to all men and want to do nothing but corrupt and destroy the creation of God. Religious freedom to the Jew means the destruction of Christendom. That's why there was an inquisition. Other Sephardic Jews, whose ancestors had left Spain and Portugal for Holland, had come to New Amsterdam with the Dutch. Now, a lot of those Jews actually came to New Amsterdam after a long stop in in Portuguese Brazil. And, And Jews thrived in Portuguese Brazil for quite some time until the Portuguese ran the Dutch out of Brazil, and then they ended up in New York. These Jews who maintained commercial connections with their kindred in Europe and in Africa established themselves in the Caribbean and South America. They were already heavily involved in the slave trade and the trafficking of merchandise in the New World long before the English established a formidable presence here. These circumstances gave Jews a huge advantage in the newly forming English colonies, where most Christians still rejected usury. We see that Cotton Mater didn't, um, the, the Cambridge Synod and, and the announcement that New, England, New England's Puritans would accept the practice of usury didn't occur until 1699. Most Christians at this time still worked with their hands. They still traded with barter. There were some English merchants. Examples of Jews engaged in these things in the early colonies are numerous. And here we shall mention some of those which are notable. There were many more that I'm about to mention. Maybe not as illustrious as some of these, but there were many more. Aaron Lopez, a Sephardic Jew merchant who established himself in Newport, Rhode Island, owned over two dozen ships, many which carried biblical names, and recorded at least a dozen voyages to Africa made in order to acquire Negro slaves. Lopez had commercial interests in the West Indies, British Isles, and throughout the American colonies. He had his own wharf, and in addition to the slave trade, He was involved in the trade or manufacture of ships, barrels, candles, rum, chocolate, pork, some Jew, molasses, bottled beer, textiles, clothing, shoes, hats, and bottles. By 1749, Lopez was generally considered to be one of the largest merchants in the country. Lopez conducted his affairs, like many of the early Jewish merchants in America, whose households <clears throat> i'm sorry whose households and businesses were entirely dependent upon negro slave labor and whose ready willingness to use and trade slaves gave them a large business advantage over their white christian counterparts lopez did suffer some losses during the war at the hands of the british However, after his death in 1782, his son-in-law, Abraham Mendez, carried on his business quite successfully. Lopez was not the only prominent Jewish slave trader and merchant in New England. Another example from Newport is Isaac Elezer, who who being partnered with another Jew, a Jew named Samuel Moses, was a merchant shipper who dealt in slaves, liquor, and whatever else he could trade between Africa and ports in the Caribbean. Now the Jew would counter me and say, well, there were a lot of English slave traders operating in New England. And my answer would be that nearly all of those companies slave trading in New England were funded or owned by Jews in London. Another Jew, Moses Michael Hayes, was a prominent Boston merchant with overseas connections. The Hayes family also started out in Newport, Rhode Island. I know people used to call it Jewport, Rhode Island. But went to Boston in 1776. Hayes was born in New York City in 1739 to Dutch immigrants judah hayes and rebecca michaels hayes judah hayes took his son into the shipping and retail business and upon his death in 1764 left him the business and the largest share of its assets like other jewish merchants hayes and his family left newport for boston ahead of the british occupation in 1776 i wonder how they got the news hayes opened a shipping office in boston and was among the first merchants there to underwrite shipbuilding trade and insurance to newly opened Far Eastern markets. That's funny, those markets were opened by the British. In 1784, Hayes became a founder and the first depositor of the Massachusetts Bank, still doing business today as Fleet Bank Corporation. With his close friend, Paul Revere, and 14 other Boston businessmen, Hayes formed several insurance companies. That information comes from the American Jewish Historical Society, AJHS.org. Hayes is a poster boy for Jews in colonial America. Since he openly asserted his Jewish identity, and he was nevertheless accepted among the Bostonian social elites. Hayes was also a large contributor to the supposedly Christian Harvard College. No wonder the Christian colonies became such a safe haven for Jewry. Actually, they were corrupted long before Hayes. Today, over a third of Harvard College is Jewish its students, and its faculty. And to think of Paul Revere, the quintessential American hero, as the friend of Jews like Moses Hayes, you may never think the same of him again. No wonder he got so much good press. No wonder he was so promoted. It seems that liberalism in New England is as old a problem as New England has existed without a doubt. I'm going to give another example of the Jewish influence at Harvard. Once Christian, Harvard seems to have had a love affair with Jews even before Moses Hayes came to Boston. And and Moses Hayes contributed great deals of money to Harvard. Judah Monis, M-O-N-I-S, is an example of the early Jewish influence on Harvard Harvard College at that time. He was there almost as early as the days of Cotton Mather. Imagine that. From the Brown University website, and I quote, an individual of complicated background. Well, most Jews are. They're they're not who they say they are. They all have complicated backgrounds. They're Canaanites. (laughs) An individual of complicated background." Judemonis had a good command of Spanish and is thought to have been of Portuguese Jewish heritage, thought he may have been of Spanish Jewish heritage. He was definitely of Jewish heritage. He probably grew up in Venice or elsewhere in Italy, and he received an education from the Hebrew Academies of Livorno and Amsterdam. The quintessential international Jew. He served as a Jewish teacher, perhaps even as a rabbi in Jamaica and New York, and was admitted as a freeman of New York City in 1716. Monas began correspondence with the intellectual community of New England, and in 1720 showed his manuscript of Hebrew grammar to the Harvard Corporation. Seeking an appointment as a teacher of Hebrew. His essay, which he called The Truth, the first of three defenses, get this, of Christian theology that he prepared in opposition to the rabbinical view that the Messiah was yet to arrive, was delivered on the occasion of his 1722 baptism into Christianity in College Hall in Cambridge. One month after this public event, although he continued to observe the Saturday Sabbath, Monas received an appointment as Harvard's first Hebrew instructor. His Hebrew grammar was finally printed in 1735, the first to be published in America. That was probably the beginning of the end for Christian Harvard College. One of the earliest Jews in New Jersey was a Sephardic Jew named Aaron Luzada, who settled in Brook in 1698. The Luzada family was originally from Barbados. Luzada's ancestors can be traced to the time of the Inquisition. Imagine that. I'll bet they can't be traced back to the Hebrews of the Exodus. Many of Luzada's relatives were landowners and merchants in the Caribbean. Luzada himself held many parcels of land in central New Jersey. He was a dealer in spices and liquor and slaves, and he owned slaves. Many of the Sephardic Jews who came to New Jersey in the 18th century were either relatives or in-laws or business acquaintances of Luzada. One of Luzada's descendants, Jacob, had sided with the British and fled to Nova Scotia with other Loyalists in 1783. Not all of them. The descendants of Jacob Luzada can still be found on the Internet. They still have an impact on Nova Scotia under this day. The Gretz family of Philadelphia was active in the war for independence on the part of the revolutionists. They were also land speculators, slave traders, and fur traders. And they were slaveholders until the Civil War. Before that war, one of the family scions, Benjamin Gretz, had relocated to Kentucky. He was a longtime friend of Henry Clay and a supporter of Henry Clay's presidential ambitions. That's found in the, the letters of Rebecca Gretz which are available at archive.org. The brothers, Michael and Barnard Gretz of Philadelphia, and Joseph Simon, and Levi Andrew Levi of Lancaster, engaged in extensive Western trade and land speculation. The Gretz brothers established posts along the western frontier and traded with the Indians. That comes from a Jewish writer, a a rather candid Jewish writer, but a Jewish writer nonetheless, named Jack D. Foner. I can't even find the emendation right now. I'm sorry. It's in the article. In the colonial period, white Christians were fighting the Indians. And evidently, Jewish merchants were reaping a healthy share of the financial benefits. Another Jewish mercantile family in early Philadelphia was Frank's family, which were merchants in the Indian trade and major suppliers of weapons to the colonists who were fighting the Indians. It is believed that Levi Andrew Levi was an agent of Frank's when he participated in giving smallpox-infested blankets to the Indians. Not that I have any empathy for the Indians, but white people are usually blamed for that. White Europeans are always blamed in the general histories for doing those Horrible things to the Indians. And the Jews admit that it was Jewish merchants doing it when you read Jewish histories. And it's incredible. It's incredible that they, that they make that admi- admission openly in their own writing. But then, well, when your children go off to school and learn about the, the colonization of America, it's those mean European white people that gave those smallpox-infested blankets to the Indians. The, um, the Hayes families and the Gretz families, in the period between the revolution, I don't know about before the revolution, but there's a lot of documentation in the period between the revolution and the time of the War of Northern Aggression that those families were intermarrying. And, and had an awful lot of influence, and were very involved as as catalysts, some members of the family were involved as catalysts for that war on one side or the other. There was a um, a Jewess and i didn 't include this in my article, and i don 't even really have the, the the notes in me named Emma Mordecai, who, in her family papers, in her personal papers, admitted. that that it was Jews that were responsible for a lot of the cruelty and the put-down of of the um, Nat Turner slave rebellion, the, the uprising. Now, she wrote that in her own papers, and she was also a slave owner herself, and she was related by blood or by marriage to both the Gretz and the Hayes families the Hayes family of Boston, the Jewish Hayes of Boston and the Gretzes of Philadelphia. So all of these, the, the, I mean, when you really look into this, you'll find a um, veritable Jewish network of, of interrelated Jews who, who almost sort of had their own trading territory. Even, though, even if it was never official, of course. Going back to, quote, to quoting Foner, Jews and the American military from the colonial era to the eve of the Civil War is the name of his article, and, and it's a pretty lengthy one. During the four colonial wars, Jewish merchants provided equipment and supplies to the British Army and provincial troops. Between 1740 and 1743, Abraham Minnis, and that name will come up a few times tonight, Abraham Minnis of Savannah operated boats shuttling supplies to James Oglethorpe's troops. For some Jewish merchants, military contracts became an extremely lucrative business. Jacob Franks of New York and his son David of Philadelphia were the chief suppliers of the British Army during the French and Indian Wars. They furnished the supplies used in General James Braddock's unsuccessful attacks, I'm going to butcher this French name, on Fort Duquesne, I don't know how to say that, I could spell it, in 1755 and helped equip George Washington's expedition that took the fort in 1758. Jacob and David Franks received over 750,000 pounds, at that time that's a hell of a lot of money, for provisioning British armies and garrisons. Matthias Bush of Philadelphia, Joseph Simon, and Levi Andrew Levi, or maybe it's Levy Andrew Levy, of Lancaster, and Uriah Hendricks of New York were also actively engaged in supplying the armed forces. And Jewish sutlers, a sutler is a, is a merchant in, in, in um, the ancient, in, in ancient history, well, when you read the, the ancient Greek classics and, and things like that, they're called camp followers. Well, when you read the Roman histories, they're called camp followers. That They're basically the... um. The, the forerunners to those big corporations today that make lots of money providing civilian services in Iraq. Suttlers is a nice name for the camp followers. And Jewish Suttlers were stationed with the troops at forts on Lake George and along the upper Hudson River. It was also during these colonial wars that privateering became big business. And Jewish merchants, well, Walfaner says that Jewish merchants joined in this hazardous but lucrative activity, either as individual owners or members of groups. They joined each other, maybe. Many others, such as Lindo, many other names, such as Lindo, Mass, Mordecai, Levi, Wolf, Delion, Isaacs, Cohen, were all the names of prominent, Jewish individuals or families, in the the case of Lindo, Mass, and Mordecai, at least, operating in the trade of slaves and commodities with their co-religionists in Europe, in the Caribbean, and elsewhere in the colonies, while owning slaves' industries and plantations in the Carolinas and Virginia. As a side note, one endeavor... And and, and, and this was the trade of indigo dye, which used in textiles and doors today in the form of American blue jeans. We wear blue jeans today because the Jews wanted a market for their indigo, which they were bringing from the Caribbean. At one point, 10,000 slaves were employed in the Jewish-controlled indigo industry. The Jewish Monsanto family, the Monsanto family is Jewish, of Louisiana. The ancestors of the famous Monsantos of seed company fortune were merchants, slave owners and traders and plantation owners. Isaac Rodriguez Monsanto was one of the first known Jews to settle in New Orleans. Today. Monsanto was famous for its genetically modified seed, for mixing the DNA from diverse species and corrupting the creation of God. It seems to be an ages-old practice with this family. Isaac's son, Jacob, one generation in New Orleans, that's all it took, was mating with his slaves as soon as the family established itself Louisiana. Jacob Monsanto, son of Isaac Rodriguez Monsanto, one of the very first known Jews to settle in New Orleans, owner of a several hundred acre plantation at Manchac, fell in love with his slave, Mamie, or Mamie, well, well, two different spellings of the same name, Mamie William, their daughter Sophia, grew up to be a lovely quadroon. Well, I wouldn't think so, but the people that wrote that article did. That's dot org. That actually stands for the Nation of Islam Research Group. And a lot of their information comes from Jewish sources. You don't find this stuff. You, you don't find this stuff in histories written for white Christians. It's very difficult to come by. Most of it can be documented. Archive.org and, and several similar websites have um, are, are actually replete with PDF files of the original books, the original papers. Some of the research material is um, closed off and, and available only to academics at certain, by certain universities or libraries where the material is deposited. that there's some things I would like to get my hands on that I probably never will. If you're not credentialed, you're not going to see it. Or if you're not paying a hefty subscription fee every year, you're not going to see it. It's it's there, but you won't find it in history books for your school children. The history books for your school children say that white people gave those smallpox-infested blankets to those poor Indians. Okay, it can be argued. That Jews were greatly reliant upon the institution of slavery for their success, and that they would not have been able to gain the business advantages which they had if it were not for slavery. A very strong argument can be can, can be posited in that regard. I, I have a, um, I, I have another theory I 'll discuss in a moment. Evidence of this, evidence of this argument, it is circumstantial but nonetheless convincing. For instance, in 1740, a restriction against slavery was instituted in Savannah, Georgia, and many Jews left the city rather than hire free men for labor. An exception is recorded in the Minnis family, we just mentioned Abraham Minnis supplying the British troops and and, and profiting handsomely. An exception is recorded in, in the Minnis family, which waited out the restriction and returned to the practice of slavery as soon as the restriction was lifted. And, and that is an admission of Jack Foners. A family ski on and, and it's evident in history, but because at the other end of Savannah's restriction on slavery, we see the Minnis family still in Savannah and, and still engaged in business and and. and Still engaged in supplying troops, Philip Minnis actually um, became a paymaster. A family skion, Philip Minnis was president of Savannah's congregation, Mikveh Israel, the local synagogue. He also served during the revolution as paymaster to the Continental Army for Georgia. Imagine that, Judas Iscariot in Georgia during the revolution. I wrote in my article Philadelphia In a flock of sheep, wolves left to roam freely will always have full bellies. It's absolutely true. In a Christian society, the Jews, whose nature it is to profit from usury, gambling, slave trading, and every other vice and racket they can conjure, will always acquire a lion's share of the wealth. So it was in early America. Back to Jack Foner. Far more important, and I'm quoting his article, far more important than the contribution of the hundred or so Jews who served in the Continental Army and state militias, and that's Foner's admission, he admits that about a hundred or so Jews actually served in, in, in active um, military roles. Whether they were they probably weren't all on the front lines. I'm sure. I'm sure most of them were supply clerks and things like that, and paymasters. But but only a hundred or so Jews served in the Continental Army and the state militias. And Foner admits that far more important than their contribution were the commercial activities of Jewish entrepreneurs who, in the words of Jacob R. Marcus, a a Jewish um, so-called scholar, right? I hate to call Jews scholars, a a Jewish academic that, that he relies upon. In the words of Jacob R. Marcus, helped to keep commodities flowing to the army and advanced indispensable financing to the revolutionary government. Joseph Simon of Lancaster, for example, supplied the Continental Army with rifles, ammunition, drums, blankets, and other supplies, and provided money to pay for a messenger service between the city and Washington's army. Jewish entrepreneurs provided essential supplies by running the British blockade and serving as civilian purveyors to the armed forces. They also outfitted privateers and extended credit for the purchase of material and for paying soldiers. As brokers, they served the revolutionary cause by selling government bonds. Now, note this final rather candidly admitted that only a hundred or so Jews served in the Continental Army. That's out of tens of thousands of soldiers who served throughout the war only a hundred or so of them were Jews. And while not all, it, it's the, the point being that while the Jewish population wasn't very large in this country, if we have less than 0.01% of the soldiers being Jews, we have a much greater proportion of the merchants and the moneylenders, a much greater proportion And while not all merchants were Jewish, conventional histories, those histories they write for white Christians, conventional histories clearly underrepresent the large number of Jewish merchants and their role in the war. In fact, as a child in school, I actually did pay attention. I read a lot of history books in addition to the history books and, and, and the things that I had to read to get through school. And I never remember a history book. It told me about Jewish merchants in the American Revolution. these conventional histories clearly underrepresent the large numbers of Jewish merchants and their role in the war, if indeed they are mentioned at all. Farner, along with other Jewish historians, described the Jewish role in the war, but they endeavored to predict it to, to depict it I'm sorry. They endeavor to to depict the Jewish role in the war, and, and the Jews in general, in the best possible light. They do the same for the predominant Jewish role in the slave trade. There's a booklet I've cited in this article from the ADL, and I'm looking for it. I'm not doing good finding my, um, my my citations tonight, I'm sorry. The ADL published booklet, American Jews, Their Story, by Oscar Handlin, synopses of which can be found on several web- websites. That booklet is said, and, and I couldn't obtain the booklet, I would like to, but I've read in several sources that the ADL is heavily criticized because they tried to draw a picture of the Jewish role in the slave trade as very um, humane, to say the least. They tried to whitewash the Jewish role in the slave trade after it came to light. Or after it started to come to light in, in alternate media with the growth of alternate media, let's put it that way. Furthermore, Connor mentions the civilian purveyors to the armed forces. These people earned rather hefty commissions for their services. From a current U.S. Army publication, and I quote, long before the revolution, that this is right from the U.S. Army website, it's cited in this article. Long before the revolution, the payment of commissions to purchasing commissaries and quartermasters had become an established business procedure. I would say that probably started like around the French and Indian War when the Jews were filling those roles. Through contracts, I'm sorry, though contracts for providing supplies to British troops during the French and Indian War were placed with English merchants and we've already seen other sources that have told us that Jewish merchants had a predominant role in that, the later had agents in the colonies to act for them. Well, maybe all of the agents were Jewish merchants. Provincial troops participating in that war also had to be supplied. For the attack on Crown Point, for an example, Rhode Island appointed a New York merchant I'm sure a Jewish New York merchant, as its agent to supply its troops with food and clothing, negotiate money bills for the province, and sell all produce sent to him as payment for the colony's account. For this service, he received commissions of 5% for purchases, 2.5% for money, and 7.5% for storage and sale. That comes from a book written by... Erna Risch for the U.S. Army entitled Supplying Washington's Army. I guess they're interested in it for the logistics value, right? While many Christian Americans were making great sacrifices for their cause without any expectation of remuneration, the indispensable financing from the Jews which Foner and other sources boast of, came in the form of loans. For instance, the Toro Synagogue, from their website, they say of the Baltimore Jew Jacob Hart, Jacob Hart was a Jewish merchant in Baltimore during the Revolution, born in first Bavaria, Hart immigrated to America, settling in Baltimore in 1775. He established himself as a merchant, and though in America only a year at the outbreak of the war, aligned himself with the patriot cause. When General Lafayette visited Baltimore in 1791 and told the population of the army's needs, the merchants of the city subscribed for a loan. Jacob Hart was at the head of the list of the contributors with the largest contribution. 2,000 out of the 5,000 pounds contributed. I love the language they use. Indeed, Jews always portray their endeavors in the best possible light. A contribution made to a loan subscription is not a donation. Rather, Hart was merely getting in on the action. He was expecting to make gains from the practice of usury and thereby profit from the war effort. That's what was going on there. For for things such as this, the Jews sought to be rewarded with citizenship after the war. And they also achieved that, being the effective and persistent salesmen which they are. Their profiteering and their self enrichment were transformed into personal suffering and hardship in post revolution politics as they used their stories to win themselves allotments of land and lucrative public appointments. I'm going to give two examples of that, and these are only examples. Reuben Edding of Baltimore. Enlisted in the in, in, in Continental Forces, enlisted in the Army after the Battle of Lexington. He was taken prisoner by the British. He died shortly after his release. The Edding family was a rather large Jewish family of Baltimore. Members of the Edding family had married into the Gratz family in Philadelphia. Imagine that. All these Jews are connected with each other. They claim that he died due to his being served only pork in prison in Britain. Uh, Well, well, in the British prison, I'm sorry. And and, and that his abuse led to his death while he was a prisoner of war. A cousin bearing the same name, born in 1762, also said to have fought in the war, was appointed as a United States Marshal in 1801 by President Thomas Jefferson. I wonder how many um, white Christian veterans got such lucrative appointments after the war. One prolific example of someone who was um, granted an allotment of property, a Jew who was granted an allotment of property after the war for his service, is Samuel Ashman who with a group of others was awarded land in upstate New York by the New York State Legislature for his role in the American Revolution. Now, it's unclear, as of yet, I I can't seem to find it, exactly what Samuel Ashman's role was in the Revolution, since it is not explained in any of the articles I was able to locate. Most of the articles talk about his more illustrious son, Jehuda Ashman. Samuel was one of only six men who were given a bounty of land from the New York State Legislature in 1788 for their services performed during the American Revolution. Those men became the founders of what is now the town of Champlain in far upstate northeastern New York. Samuel Ashman promptly became the Champlain Town Clerk. In the first decade of the 1800s, Samuel Lashman and his family converted to Christianity. Imagine that. He had 10 children. They intermarried with local Christians. And today, there are many people in upstate New York and parts of nearby Canada, as well as some who have left the area, who were descended from Samuel Ashman's children. I wonder how many people married his children not knowing that they were Jews. The, the, the wheat and the tares, the lines are drawn a lot more lopsided than we may think. <laughs> Jehudi Ashman, the third of Samuel's brood, was only 14 when the Reverend Amos Pettengill began to tutor him for preparation for college. How enamored some early American Protestants were with Jews. Today they just, today they virtually worship Jews. At that time they were simply enamored with Jews and especially converted Jews. From 1812 through 1816, Jehudi Ashman attended Middlebury College and the University of Vermont. In 1816, this second-generation Jew whose um, family was given land in a, a large portion of land in upstate New York was serving as a Presbyterian minister already when he had graduated. In 1818, two years after his graduation, he became the principal of the Bangor Theological Seminary in Bangor, Maine. Imagine that. Then Ashvin became the editor of the Washington Theological Repertory, a large annual publication expressing the principles of the Episcopal Church. The 19, the eight, I'm sorry, the 1819 edition, but which must have been edited by this Jehudi Ashman, is available on Google Books, and the PDF is 309 pages. I have a copy of it. I downloaded today in preparation for this program. I'm not quoting anything from it, but I wanted to see it. In Washington, Jehudi Ashman learned of the American Colonization Society, a society that was founded to establish a homeland for free blacks, freed slaves, to return them to Africa. Some sources give this Jehudi Ashman credit for helping to found the society, but other sources um, do not indicate that. In 1820, Jehudi Ashman started a newspaper called the African Intelligence to promote the ACS program, to promote the American Colonization Society program, to return Negroes to a colony in West Africa. Jehudi Ashman also naturally became an early antagonist in the slavery issue. The ACS managed to persuade Congress to purchase land in order to populate it with freed blacks. Eventually, that became Liberia. In 1820, the first shipload of settlers sailed to the colony. Shortly thereafter, Ashman himself was assigned to bring 37 liberated Negroes to Liberia. On that trip, he ended up spending six years there as an agent for the U.S. government. Some sources say that he was the actual governor of Liberia. In 1828, he returned to the U.S., where where fortunately, he died of fever at the age of 34. But this is one example. It's one example uh, of how Jews rewarded after the American Revolution for, for a role that was um, unexplained, but, but more than likely fairly nominal, Parlayed that into the complete infiltration of Christian society in America. And after one generation with this Ashman family, they're running that they're running Christianity, that <laughs> they're editing important Christian publications, they're principles at important Christian schools. That, that, this is to, that this, you, you couldn't write this story better if you were a Jew. Jews also often lay claim to wartime heroism, which in reality has been earned by others. These claims lend further insight into the nature of Jewish commerce and wartime profiteering. While the Jew may risk the cost of a ship, the cost of a ship is only a risk of capital. It's a merely routine business expense. The Jew was certainly not the sailor risking his life, as the greatest majority of those were white Christians. An examination of the slave-purchasing voyages of the ships of Aaron Lopez shows that the ships were staffed and piloted by white Christians. One source, Jack Foner, professes, That among the most daring of the British blockade runners, those ships running the British blockade, was the firm of Isaac Moses and Company, based in Philadelphia, whose ships made the run from Amsterdam to St. Eustatius in the Dutch Caribbean, which served as an American supply base until its seizure by the British in 1781. The new rulers, meaning the British, vented their anger on local Jews, those Jews in in the Dutch Caribbean, right? Stripping them of their property and deporting 30 of them to the island of St. Kitts. The multifaceted efforts of Isaac Moses and his partners, who were sitting comfortably in, in, in Philadelphia, were of considerable significance to the American cause. To help finance the invasion of Canada in 1775, the company made available over $20,000 in specie in exchange for continental paper currency. We're going to get to that in a moment because what they were really doing was currency speculation. Moses was also among the more than 20 Jewish merchants involved in outfitting privateers who harassed British shipping during the revolution. He also provided a personal bond of 3,000 British pounds to provide supplies for the American army. Note that this is all loans. He's not gifting anything. Other Jewish merchants who advanced funds included Jacob Hart, who loaned money to pay Lafayette's troops, which we've already discussed here, and Philip Minnis, who as paymaster advanced money to the Continental Forces fighting in Georgia. Some, including Minnis, were eventually repaid, at least in part, by Congress. Mordecai Sheftal, who had dipped into his own pocket to supply Continental troops was not among the fortunate ones. After the war, he repeatedly appealed without success for a settlement of his pay accounts and reimbursement for his advances. I want nothing but justice, reads one of his petitions to Congress. I could smell the crocodile tears. Eventually, Sheftal received about 5% of what he claimed to be owed. Now, I would want to investigate the Sheftal affair further. I'll say one thing for Foner, to his credit, elsewhere in his article, well, in parts I didn't quote, he is rather candid concerning the role of Haynes Solomon. He does admit that Haynes Solomon was only a minor bond broker in the employ of the real financier to the American Revolution, who was Robert Morris, an Englishman and not a Jew, ostensibly anyway these Jewish moneylenders and wartime profiteers are the very people to whom George Washington was referring, where he mentioned the tribe of black gentry in his papers. Washington must have been familiar with these Jews from his early days as an officer, a British officer in the Indian Wars. They seem to have vexed him throughout and perhaps even beyond the revolution, discussing speculators in the currency. George Washington said in 1779, and, and I'm actually quoting this from, the maxims of Washington, political, social, moral, and religious, collected and arranged by John Frederick Schroeder, Doctor of Divinity, and published by D. Appleton and Company in 1854. This, um, the PDF file of the book, you could get it from um, Google Books, but you could probably get it easier from Clifton Emma Heiser's website, where I have it posted. Washington said in 1779, this tribe of black gentry work more effectually against us than the enemy's arms. They are a hundred times more dangerous to our liberties and the great cause we are engaged in. You will find this on Schroeder's book on pages 125 and 126. How can we be certain that Washington was talking about these Jews? Discussing the very same topic a year earlier, Washington said, and I quote, It is much to be lamented that each state long before this, long ere this, a modernized language, long before this, has not hunted them down as pests to society and the greatest enemies we have to the happiness of America. I would to God that someone of the most atrocious in each state was hung upon a gallows five times as high as the one prepared for Haman. No punishment, in my opinion, is too great for the man who can build his greatness upon his country's ruin." Schroeder, page 126. Washington's mistake there was imagining that this country was also the Jews' country. The reference to Haman is what fully indicates to us that Washington was indeed speaking about the Jews. The reference to Haman is a reference to the mythical character of the book of Esther, the Persian general who had desired to have killed all of the Jews within the Persian Empire. In the story, the Jews prevail and retribution is sadly granted. The cry to hang wartime profiteers and speculators upon a gallows five times as high as the one prepared for Haman, is a cry of vindication for Haman himself. While I do not esteem the book of Esther to be a canonical book of scripture, we can appreciate Washington's reference to Haman in connection with his reference to the tribe of black gentry, since it clearly shows that he was talking about Jews. That quote is actually misquoted on a lot of websites where other readers of that quote also realized that Washington was talking about jews and and, and they've taken the liberty to replace some of the language to indicate that now that's not really wrong it it's not very it, it's not very scholarly you're actually a lot better off doing what I just did and and quoting it the way Washington said it and then actually explaining why we know he was talking about Jews. But nevertheless, the people that quote it in that manner, even though it's not really academic and correct, they still realized that Washington had to be talking about Jews. And he did. The tribe of black gentry, he means the Jews. The reference to Haman, that seals the identification. There should be no doubt. Another thing that's, that, that's um, unfortunate about this quote where it appears on many other websites is that the book, the, the title of the book and its publisher are miscited. That's why I downloaded the PDF from Cl- for, for, um, for Clifton's website. Clifton actually found this and posted these maxims on his website or, or asked me to post them about six weeks, eight weeks ago. And, and when I posted them, I realized the value of them. And that was the basis for this article tonight. But I also realized when I looked some, of some things up on the Internet that most of the websites that quote these passages from George Washington, they miscite the sources. The, 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 the book that these came from is correctly cited on Clifton's website and in the Saxon Messenger editorial for April. If George Washington, I'm sorry, I'm ahead of myself, the international profiteering, unpatriotic Jew has corrupted America from its very inception. They ruled the economy of the nation from its earliest days, not because of their talent or ability, but simply because of their nature. While it's the nature of the white Christian to work first, for community, it's the nature of the Jew to work primarily for profit and then to use that profit in order to rule over communities. While this may be difficult to quantify, the proof is in the pudding, as my own New England ancestors like to say. The old money which those same ancestors, my grandmother, my great-grandparents, often mentioned was indeed Jewish money. I have no doubt. They were just too polite to say it that way. If George Washington had only been explicit in his warnings about the true nature of these enemies to the happiness of America, as he put it, rather than using such subtle veiled language, would America have better withstood the Jewish subterfuge? Men such as Ezra Stiles were already singing the praises of such Jews. And he was a close friend of both Aaron Lopez and Moses Michael Hayes, as his own diaries attest, or or better than that, as they betray. Stiles, a Congregationalist minister just like Cotton Mather, became the first president of Yale, Harvard College was already indebted to the Jew Hayes by Washington's time for his generosity. The damage to Christian principles caused by Cotton Mather had already infected New England and the rest of the country for a 100 years by Washington's time. While more explicit statements from Washington may not have prevented the corruption of America. He may have have nevertheless increased awareness about this brood of vipers. The first Christian apostles were braver, and the early New England clergy certainly betrayed them. The Apostle Paul warned us about the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and they persecuted us. I know that the King James Version says, and their own prophets, but those words are not extant in the earliest manuscripts. Who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and have persecuted us and they please not God and are contrary to all men. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Likewise, the Apostle John also warned us, whoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ, not abiding in Christ is the transgression, has not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ. He has both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, meaning the doctrine of Christ, receive him not into your house. Jews should have never been admitted to America. Neither bid him Godspeed. In other words, do not greet him. For he that bids him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. 2 John 9-11. to Indeed, it has been a long time since Christians have actually practiced anything resembling Christianity. You know we could get um well we could get upset at people like Cotton Mather, Ezra Styles, and we should be. However, if Cotton Mather and Ezra Styles If those men weren't sellouts in the first place, would we know their names today? Probably not. We know their names because they're sellouts. Real Christians should understand that if the world is praising any Christian, then that Christian that the world is praising is a traitor. It's that simple. Praise Yahweh. In the end, we win. Thank you for listening, and good night. I will be here next Friday.